Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Genesis chapter 4. Um, <clears throat> one of the uh, most frequently discussed topics among Christians over the last several decades is this question of Christianity and culture. How Christians should relate to culture. There have been countless books written on this topic. Uh, so much said about this topic. Uh, there's the question of how our culture influences us as Christians. There's also this question of, of what we should be doing as Christians to transform or change the culture. And there are just many theories, many books, many ideas about exactly how that should work. There are extreme views on both sides of this debate. Some people think of culture as entirely evil. Some Christians have that idea, and so they flee from culture and seek to extract themselves from it as much as possible. And then there are others who tend to see the culture as almost all good, and they just want to embrace everything that they find in the culture, and we'll find that even within the Christian church. Um, one thing for sure is, friends, is you cannot escape culture. Uh, it, you are part of a culture. You live and work and play in a culture. Just like a fish in water can hardly imagine what it's like not to be wet, neither can we really think or imagine what it's like to not be in culture because we're always immersed swimming in a culture a culture of one kind or another. It doesn't matter if you're interested in politics or not, or music or not, or the arts or history or science. Maybe you don't pay attention to those things. You're still influenced by the culture in which you live. Culture has powerful influence on a people. Um, there's a sociologist named Charles Taylor who has coined this term called the social imaginary the social imaginary, and by that he means uh, what ordinary people believe about the world without even thinking about it. That's the social imaginary, that most people have certain convictions and beliefs and positions about what is true and what is not, about morality, about God, about heaven. They have these convictions, and it's not anything they've really studied. It's not anything that they've... Um, read a book about even. It's not anything that they've thought about real carefully. It's just something they take for granted. It's just the conviction that they have absorbed from the culture in which they live. So many of our convictions are, are that way. They just come to us because we're swimming in the waters of culture. That's why it's so important for us to understand what the Bible says about culture and to think about how we should relate to it. And that's what this passage is about this morning here in Genesis chapter 4, verses 17 to 26. We're returning here to our sermon series on Genesis, the gospel according to Genesis. We've just been going through this first book of the Bible, one passage at a time. Um, we'll be taking another short break from this book next week. Every year on the first Sunday of the year, I give what I call a state of the church sermon. I've done that the last three or four years, and so... We'll do that next week, um, and then we'll return to Genesis after that. But this morning, Genesis 4, 17 to 26. Let me read that text to us. If you're able to stand, please do so. 
And I'll read this text and try hard not to, to butcher these names that I have to read here. Starting with verse 17, this is picking up with the story of Cain and Abel. You might remember uh, Cain has killed Abel because Abel's sacrifice to God was accepted. Cain's wasn't, so Cain murdered Abel. And now we're kind of picking up in the middle of the story of these two guys. So verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he killed, excuse me, he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Lord God, please, by your spirit, open our eyes and our hearts to behold wonderful things in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> so, how do we think about the relationship between the Christian and culture? Uh, the first thing that I want you to see is this, that because of God's command, culture is developed. There is a natural development of culture because of the command of God. So let me show you that here in the text. First of all, verse 17, actually before we get to that, a, a brief tangent here. We see in verse 17 that it says, Cain knew his wife. Now, if you're looking at the text carefully, you're thinking to yourself, questioning, where did this wife come from, right? Uh, we got Adam and Eve. They had kids, Cain and Abel. Abel is dead. All we know about is Cain, and now we're seeing Cain marrying someone, where did she come from? And so that's a good question. No explanation here is given in the text. I, I think the only answer is that Cain has married a daughter of Adam. Cain here has married his sister. So that's not something we recommend today. In fact, that's not something that's even legal today, but it did happen then. I mean, that's the only solution here. It's inevitable if the human race is going to develop from one couple, Adam and Eve, that some intermarrying is going to have to take place. Um, this practice of marrying someone close to you is um, forbidden later in the Old Testament, but at this point it is permissible, it is inevitable, and I think that's probably all we need to say about it. But when I say that because of God's command, culture is developed, you might say, well, what command are you talking about? 
And this is the very important command back in chapter 1, verse 28, that we have considered already um, a couple of times in this sermon series, and it's what the theologians call the cultural mandate, very important command given here in chapter 1, verse 28. It's interesting, we're going to look at Noah's flood in a little while, and after the flood, the very first thing God does when he speaks to Noah is to reiterate the creation mandate. So this is very important, and here's what it says. God says to them, that's Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That's the cultural mandate. The essence of this command from God to Adam and Eve is this. It's humankind, build upon my creation. Humankind, take the raw materials of what I have made. This is God speaking. Take the raw materials of what I have made and turn it into something. Work it. Develop it. Expand it. And another way to say this is to say that it is a command to build culture to pursue cultural pursuits of various kinds. That's the cultural mandate. It's God's command to the entire human race. This is chapter one, it's before the fall. This is humankind's job description, God's expectation for what all of humanity is gonna do throughout history. Al Walters says this, mankind as God's representatives on earth carry on where God left off in creation is what he means. But this is now to be a human development of the earth. God is the one who developed the earth in creation. But now the task is handed to humankind. And from now on, the development of the created earth will be societal and cultural in nature. In a single word, the task ahead is civilization. Build a civilization. This doesn't mean that God is absent. Certainly, he is still providentially involved in all affairs of humankind, but he has delegated to us this task of developing culture. And so we see this. Let me show you in the text how this shows up. Cain knows his wife, and um, from that relationship, verse 17, comes this person named Enoch. And what does Enoch do? He builds a city. That's a fulfillment of the cultural mandate. That's a cultural step forward. Probably the first cultural activity was Adam and Eve in the garden. They're called to cultivate the garden. Take what God has made, the garden, and turn it into something. Well, now this task is continuing. Enoch builds a city. And we see then a list of these other descendants of Cain. We see all these names listed, and starting in verse 20, we see what some of these descendants are doing. This guy named Jabal, he's the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So they're kind of nomadic individuals, they're kind of roaming over the earth, but they're also raising livestock. In other words, these are farmers. These are people who specialize in agriculture. Jabal is the father of all of those who come after him who do this. So this is the beginning of kind of an industry of farming. Verse 21, we see another person, Jubal. He's the father of all those who play the lyre and the harp. The lyre is kind of a guitar-like instrument. And so these are people who play music. These are musicians. These are artists. And so we see the beginning of the task of art. Jubal, the father of all those who would come after him who would be artists. 
And then we see in verse 22 this person named Tubal-Cain. Tubal-Cain is the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So this is uh, the beginning of technology. Uh, we have iPhones now. The iPhone is a descendant of Tubal-Cain, quite frankly. Tubal-Cain is the one developing technologically ways to harness and make life easier in this world through these instruments of bronze and iron. This is the development of culture. I mean, as a, maybe a simpler illustration, just think of rivers. Rivers are created by God, right? I mean, men and women don't create rivers. God does. But what does humanity do with rivers? Well, we come and we build boats, and we put boats on the rivers, and the boats float on the rivers, and that helps people get from town to town. And it's a good way to transport goods from one town to another. And when we get transportation going, we have to get across rivers, and so we build bridges. Bridges help us cross rivers. And for those of us who have spent a lot of time around rivers, we might start singing songs about rivers. Way down upon the Suwannee River, maybe some of you know that song. From what God has created come cultural developments. All of this is an example of culture. Now, it's more complex than what I've just described for you. And um, as I said, a lot of people have been writing about this. Here's a book I would recommend. It's called Culture Making by a guy named Andy Crouch. And so he devotes this entire book to the development of culture from a Christian point of view. And he mentions different kinds of culture. It's, the, the word culture is, is hard to define. It's just such a vast term. But he gives some examples of different kinds of culture. There's high culture, uh, you know, going to the museum and uh, the, the symphony orchestra, the kind of high arts are considered high culture. Sometimes when you hear the culture, that might be all that you think, as if you're, it's the question of whether you are a cultured individual. Well, that's part of culture, but it's more than that, because we have pop culture, too, right? We've got TV shows and fashion clothes that people wear, and the way they dress themselves, and music and movies, etc. Pop culture is extremely prevalent. It's everywhere in our world. It's a kind of culture, pop culture. Um, there's also ethnic culture, cultures related to our ethnic heritage, our nationality, where, where we have come from. Different races have different traditions and do things and think in different ways depending on the culture that has grown up around that particular ethnicity. And there's political culture. Just what happens in a nation when you talk about laws being made and how they're made and who's in office and how that person got into office, there's a very strong presence of political culture in every nature. And I would add to this that there is church culture too. <laughs> Sometimes people talk about evangelical culture that we would be a part of to some degree. There, there's actually a new life culture, whether you know it or not. It exists there's a certain culture here in this church about how we do things and why we do things and what we value. That's what our core values are about, actually. We're trying to establish a culture here. There's family culture. There's a culture in your household, the way mom and dad 
lead the household and the relationship between the children and the habits you do, the traditions you put into place and holidays like Christmas, it's all part of culture. So the point that I want to make here, and I hope you'll understand this, is that it's very important for Christians to understand that these kinds of cultural pursuits that I'm talking about are all good, legitimate activities for Christians to be involved in. It is not appropriate for a Christian to think all culture is evil, I'm going to go find a house on the mountain and live there forever and try to extract myself from culture. There's nothing wrong with living in the mountains. I'm just saying that we are not called to, like, for instance, be like the Amish who just isolate themselves from the world. I, I just don't think that's biblical. You know, Jesus says, be in the world, but not of the world. There's that balance there. But he says, you've got to be in the world. In fact, in the high priestly prayer, when Jesus is praying to the Father, he says, Father, don't take them out of the world. Guard them from the evil one, but don't take them out of the world. Don't pull them out of culture. There's a, a responsibility, I think, for Christians to be involved in their culture, to seek to have an influence on culture. Throughout history, we see many examples of people like St. Augustine, who has gone down in history as one of the greatest philosophers in Western culture, cultural history. Augustine, there's uh, a guy like Johann Sebastian Bach, you know, one of the greatest musicians who has ever lived, a committed, Bible-believing Christian. You have a writer like Flannery O'Connor um, writing fiction and short stories and gaining a reputation as one of the greatest writers of the 20th century, a committed believer. All of her stories were informed by her Christian faith. We have examples of scientists like Galileo and Kepler. These guys were Christians. They were committed believers, and they were changing the world through their cultural pursuits. That's what Christians should aim for. I know I've shared this quote with you many times before. I just love it, but it's C.S. Lewis, and he says this. He says, when we're talking to people about the gospel, he says, we can make people attend to the Christian point of view for half an hour or so, but the moment they've gone away from our lecture or laid down our article, they are plunged back into a world where the opposite position is taken for granted. In other words, they go right back into the culture. That's what he's saying. And they forget most of what you just told them about the gospel because they become immersed. Their social imaginary starts working and they start taking in what the culture is telling them. So Lewis says, what we want is not more little books about Christianity, but more little books by Christians on other subjects with their Christianity latent. What he means by that is that if you have Christians who are writing books on physics and science and art and philosophy and everybody in the world is taking note that all of the leading thinkers in all these areas are Christians, that starts to wake people up. That starts to get people's attention. What is it about this Christian faith that seems to move these people to accomplish these amazing cultural pursuits. Of course we do need little books about Christianity, and of course we do need people to proclaim the gospel. That's what pastors do, that's what missionaries do, that's what all of us are called to do to some extent, to share the gospel with others, but that's not all we're called to do. We're called to be engaged in cultural pursuits. We need Christian doctors, Christian software engineers, Christian plumbers, 
Christian filmmakers, Christian lawyers, Christian judges, Christian professors, Christian YouTube influencers. We need them all. Because of God's command, culture is developed. It's a natural development. It's a good thing. But, secondly, because of sin, culture tends to deteriorate. And so these two things need to be kept in balance. Culture tends to deteriorate. Here's what we have to notice in Genesis 4, that all of these culture makers are all descendants of Cain. Now remember what we've learned about Cain, right? Cain and Abel. We learned that Abel came from the seed of the woman. Cain came from the seed of the serpent. Cain represents the ungodly line that was manifested when Cain killed Abel. And these culture makers that I just read about and talked to you about are all descendants of Cain. And so everything that they're doing here in their tasks of farming and and music and technology, you get the feeling that there's nothing else really in their mind except their own progress and success and work. There's no reference here whatsoever to them doing any of this for the sake of their creator. That there's no spiritual component here. There's no desire for holiness here. They're just working hard at their cultural pursuits in a godless way. And that's very easy for people to do, right? This is what um, Warren Gage says, referring to this passage. This is the record of a family remarkable for its skill, but undistinguished for its piety. They have their tents, but no tent of meeting. Tent of meeting is where... Israel worshiped. They have their pipes, but no psalms to sing. They have their craftsmen, but no tabernacle to furnish. They've got all these cultural accomplishments, but no savior, no God to worship. What we're seeing here is culture, which in itself is good, but it's a godless culture. And this is the temptation that I think all of us face, right? It's that we get so involved in our work in our tasks, in our cultural pursuits, in our occupation, in our vocation. We get so caught up in making a name for ourselves, making a lot of money, getting enough money in retirement, rising up the ladder in whatever job or occupation we might have to be doing with, and we think of that only, and spiritual concerns just kind of get pushed out to the side. This is the way most of the world lives. Constantly pursuing culture and accomplishment with no regard whatsoever for the God who made them and has saved them. Well, sin continues to infect these cultural achievements, and sin finds its climax in this guy named Lamech in verse 18. Lamech is born, the very end of verse 18. Now, Um, These names here are listed in verse 18. There's five different names here. Um, If you'll excuse me, I'm not going to read them again, but these names are five. If you add to those names Adam and Cain, you've got seven names. That is seven generations. In other words, Lamech is the seventh generation after Adam. Now that number seven is actually pregnant with meaning in the scriptures Seven is symbolic of fullness or completeness. 
And so what the writer is telling us here is that in Lamech, the seventh generation of Cain, in him we have the fullness of the corruption of sin. That sin in its development has reached its pinnacle, its zenith, in this man named Lamech. And we see this in two particular ways in Lamech's life. Two things we see about him as an example of the progress of sin in culture. And the first thing we see is that Lamech defies God's pattern of marriage. Look at verse 19. Verse 19. Um, Lamech took two wives. That's not the way God set it up, is it? Just back in chapter 2, we saw God gave to Adam one wife. Lamech comes along and says, I'm taken to. I'm not going to do it God's way. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to practice marriage the way I want. And so in this Lamech, this kind of pinnacle of the corruption of culture, we see a defiance of marriage, but we also see a defiance of life in verses 23 and 24 a defiance of life. There's a violent impulse in Lamech. He has two wives, and he says to them, Ada and Zillah, notice how he talks here, just the boastful turn, t- uh, tone here. You, you can just hear the swagger in his voice. Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. So he, He's not telling them what God says. He wants them to know what he says. This is Lamech's idea, and he thinks pretty highly of himself, And now he's going to boast to his wives that I just killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Killed him. What did the young man do? It's a young man, not an older man who might be more experienced in in, in corruption. It's a young man, maybe a child. And all he did was wound him, but Lamech is not going to allow anybody to wound him, and anybody who crosses him is going to die. And in fact... If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, by the way, that was God speaking. God said that Cain's, that he would avenge Cain sevenfold. And so Lamech is saying, oh yeah, that was God's idea. Well, listen to this. I'm greater than God. I'm more serious about revenge than God is because my revenge is 77-fold, even more than God's. It's his way of saying, again, remember the symbolism of seven. This is fullness or completeness. If seven is fullness and completeness, 77 is just an overflowing, incalculable measure of violence and revenge. And Lamech says, that's me, wives. Pay attention to Lamech. You know, there's sin that has already occurred in the Bible here, but here is the first time where a person boasts about it and celebrates it, and sings about it as he makes this song about his violent impulses. And so we see, here's how sin climaxes in culture through the person Lamech. There's a defiance of marriage and a defiance of the sanctity of life. Does does that ring any bells for anybody? (laughs) About our own culture. As we see the sanctity of life just dwindling in the mind's and the values of people, and marriage being reinvented. One would be forgiven for wondering if our culture right now is deteriorating before our eyes. 
because it seems to share some of the similarities, some of the same kinds of things in this godless culture descendant from Cain. A guy named Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he was a Russian dissident, a critic of communism in Soviet Russia, and uh, he gave uh, a speech in 1983, he received the Templeton Prize, and he just summarized the horrors of Soviet communism, the gulags and, and the, the murders and the executions, and he says, here's why this all happened. It's because men forgot God. That was his summary of everything that happened in Soviet Russia. That's the basic bottom line problem. They forgot God. It used to be a country that worshiped God, but they forgot that and the result was a descent into godlessness and various horrors. Friends, that, that's one of the purposes for the church. That's one of the reasons why we exist as a congregation. This little congregation in Yorktown, Indiana, we exist as a counter-influence to the deteriorating nature of the culture around us. We exist as believers in this church to testify that there is a God and that all people are accountable to him. And this is a God not of unlimited revenge, but a God of unlimited mercy for sinners who will come to him. A mercy that is received by all who will come to Christ and a mercy that is then extended to one another, our brothers and sisters in a congregation like this. This is a place where the world should be able to look in and see that there's something different here. There's love, there's grace, there's truth, there's mercy, there's kindness in this place. There's something in here that people don't find out there. We are people who submit ourselves to the God of the universe. We are people who live the way he wants, not the way we want. We don't care what the culture says in many respects. We care what God says in his Bible, and we submit to that. Jesus said this in Matthew 5. He's speaking to his disciples, and this is to you and me at New Life. You are the light of the world, New Life. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You are the light of the world, brothers and sisters. That should be seen to some degree in the way you spend your time, in the words that you use, in the way you raise your kids, in the way you treat your spouse, in the way you do your job, in the way you use your money, in the way you treat your enemies. You are the light of the world. The culture is spinning downward. And according to Jesus, we are a light shining in the darkness. The last thing that we see here is that because of grace, there is always hope for deliverance. Because of God's command, there is the development of culture, a legitimate and good thing. But because of sin, culture is deteriorating, spinning out of control. But because of God's grace, there is hope for deliverance for all of us from this world that seems to be going down the toilet. There's hope. And here's how we see this, starting in verse 25, where the narrative goes back to the beginning now. So this is not to be regarded as chronological after Lamech. Verse 25, Adam knew his wife again. So we're now going back like seven generations. And we see that Adam and Eve um, 
our conceiving of another child. And so what the writer is doing, what Moses is doing here, is taking us to the godly line now. We've been reading about the ungodly line, the descendants of Cain, and now he goes back and says, okay, let's go back to the godly line, the seed of the woman. Let's see what's happening here. And it's Adam and Eve conceiving again, and they have another son. And his name is Seth. And Eve says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Abel, remember, was the hope. Abel was the descendant in the godly line. Cain killed Abel. And it's like, well, now what's going to happen? Is God going to be able to fulfill his promises now that Abel is killed? Well, yeah. Here's where we see it. Picks up again. Seth is now born. Yeah, Cain killed Abel. But that doesn't stop God. God's promises are going to be fulfilled. The redemptive project is going to continue. It's not up to Cain to decide. God overcomes Cain and continues this, um, this, uh, this series of descendants from the line of the woman, that word for offspring, another offspring. That's the same word used in Genesis 3.15 where God speaks to the serpent and says to the serpent that your seed and the seed of the woman are both going to be at enmity with each other. But this seed of the woman, this offspring of the woman is going to come and going to crush your head, Satan. So Eve uses the same word, another offspring. The promise is continuing. Genesis 3.15 is still alive because now someone else has been born. His name is Seth. And verse 26 says, Seth was born, uh, to Seth was born then, Uh, another person, and his name is Enosh. Now, do you know what Enosh means? Enosh means weakness. What a contrast to Lamech. Lamech, with all of his boasting about how great and powerful he is in the ungodly line of Cain, but here in the line of the woman, perpetuated and continued through Seth and now Enosh, Enosh, Seth names his son weakness. That's a distinguishing characteristic of those who come through the godly line. It's an acknowledgement of our weakness, acknowledgement of our brokenness, that we're not as mighty and as strong as we think we are. We're not as smart as we think we are. And here's what godly people do when they acknowledge their weakness. They look upward and call on God and they look to him for mercy. And you see, that's exactly what happens, the last phrase there. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And the same is true today. Friends, if you sense your weakness, your brokenness, your sin, your limits, the great depth to which you have fallen short of the glory of God, have you sensed that in your heart? Do you realize that about yourself yet? Are you still looking to yourself? Are you still leaning on your efforts, your strength, and your might? If you're relying on yourself, you won't call on God. You don't need God. You're relying on yourself. The godly line realizes weakness, and according to the scriptures, if you call in the name of the Lord, you will be saved. If you call out to the name of Jesus Christ in your weakness, bringing your sin to him, laying it at the foot of the cross, and call on him for salvation, Lord, save me. Save me, Lord. Have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the first step to conversion, right there. That's what it is to become a Christian. It's not getting your act in order. 
It's not going to the church and saying, look how good I am. Look what I've done. Look what I'm going to do. Look how moral I am. Look how smart I am. Look how strong I am. Look how holy I am. That's not what it is to become a Christian. It's, I have nothing to offer you, God. I come to you with empty hands. The only thing I can cling to is the cross, not anything in myself, but only in what you've done for me in Jesus. That's what it is to call out to God. Have you done that? Have you done that? Cultural pursuits are important. They are. They're important. We should be the best we can be in whatever occupation God has put us. No matter what you do, a stay-at-home mom, a teacher, a construction worker, do it the best you can. Be good at it to the glory of God. But what's more important is that you humble yourself and call on the name of the Lord. That's the most important thing for you to do in your life. And if you haven't done it, do it. And the Lord will save you through the work of his son. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for all that we learned from it. God, you are gracious and kind to us. Thank you, Lord, that you don't treat us with unlimited revenge, but with unlimited mercy in the person of your son. God, thank you for that. And help us, Lord, to be merciful to others as you have been to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.